you grow up wanting to be in audio? I fell into it by accident. Okay, so let's talk about that. But let me start with... Um, Repairing amps started... I had just started with the Rogues, mm-hmm. and I was working with uh, Carmelo Palumbo. And the Rogues was the band before the Mandela. Yeah, it was the Rogues, the Five Rogues, then the Mandela. Okay. So there was two Rogues. People don't realize that everybody's always the Five Rogues because that's the one they remember. But before the Five Rogues, the Rogues were forced to change their name because there was another band with the copyright in the states, and the band was going to the states, so they couldn't use the name Rogues. Hmm. It's an interesting story on the on the, on the on Bush. Yeah, because that's the same deal, right? Like, well, yeah. see, Bush X right. wanted to just use the word name Bush. And Donnie had the rights to the name. Well, they made a big mistake. A very big mistake. I don't know whether it was their agent or their manager or whoever it was called Donnie about relinquishing the rights to the name Bush. But the guy was very belligerent, to say the least, right? right? Well, you know, you know, and Donnie went, hold on a second. Right? Donnie would have relinquished the name gratis. Right. But because this guy was so belligerent and so ignorant, Donnie told him basically, fine, I'll relinquish the name, but here's what you do. I have a charity. And you will donate X amount of dollars to this charity or you can forget about the name Bush. <laughs> Donnie would not have done that right. if the guy... Donnie was one of the most civilized, nicest people you ever... You, you well, It'd be impossible for you to find anybody that would have anything derogatory to say about Donnie. Mm-hmm. Was, I, I had a chance to... Um, no, he's just he was just a sweetheart of a guy. Yeah, and, and he was but ridiculously But that's, that's how Bush X got the name, got the band name Bush, because Donnie made them donate X amount of dollars. It was a lot of money uh, to uh, to one of his charities. And I think one of the charities, I think it was Famous People Players Theater. That uh, I'm not positive on that, but I think it was either that or St. Margaret's Hospital. Because those those were both charities of Donnie's. So. Um, recently, you, you and your band played at Whitey Glenn's. Yeah. Um, Whitey was my teacher for since I was 14 years old. So tell me what that relationship meant to you. Uh, with Whitey? Yeah. Well, when I first seen Whitey play, was at the Blue Note. And uh, the band was called Whitey and the Roulettes. And Mike McKenna was the guitar player in the band. And Donnie was playing with Robbie Lane and the Disciples which became the Hawks, per, per se. After the band left Ronnie Hawkins, Robbie Lane became the band, so essentially they replaced the Hawks. Right. Donnie was only like 17, 18 years old. And uh, I always wanted to be a drummer. I had this, you know, like everybody wants to be something. Right. I wanted to be a drummer. And I, I had never seen anybody play like this before because most of the guys I heard play was like Motown guys, but I never actually seen them. I could only listen to the records, right? right? And when I when I when I seen this guy play, I went, wow, he plays just like the guys in Detroit. He plays like the black guys that play at Tamil Motown. And I just fell in love with his playing. And uh he he it turned out he was a really nice guy, you know? And I followed him around like a puppy. <laughs> I mean I was only a kid, and I was going to the Blue Note, right? And uh, uh, a short period of time later, um, Mike McKenna left the band, and Donnie came into the band. And, and I mean, Donnie just blew me away. I mean, like, he, he, he was just so head and shoulders above everybody else that it was, you know. And, of course... Then the band got Joey Horowski and George, who was actually playing organ and singing, went out front, right? And that was the start of the Rogues. And you were just associated with the band as a fan? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But um, I offered to help 
when the band left, when the Rogues left the Blue Note and they started doing gigs, I mean, they ranged anywhere from church gigs to small clubs to, we played the courthouse in Newmarket, which had a slanted stage like this. It was pretty amazing. And I just helped carry equipment and uh, uh, became much closer with Whitey and later much closer with Donnie, right? And uh, I, I, I sort of worked for free to be around Whitey to watch and to learn. Right. And it grew into uh, a friendship that was like 40 years. Okay, now, is it... Am I getting this more thing? than forty years? I'm seventy-one now, and I was about fourteen or fifteen at the time. So, <laughs> do the math. <laughs> I think I saw a picture on your website with um, the bass drum pointing upwards as mm -hmm. opposed to forward. I did that, like, yeah. That's that's what Whitey Glenn did. Did he not? There's... I did that. Yeah, I, I I built that that kit for Whitey. Yeah. Okay, because I remember See, that, at that point. A okay, rap. so I should just say that, you know, I saw I first saw that when Whitey used to play with Alice Cooper in No Welcome to My yeah, Nightmare Tour. Yeah, but he had it long before that. Okay, yeah. so, but that's when I first saw yeah. it. When I met Whitey many years ago, I asked him about that. And he said, oh, I, I said, did you think that was going to catch on? And he said, yes, <laughs> but it never did. But tell me your The, the reason story. why it never caught on and the reason why Whitey stopped doing it, you got to remember, back in the 60s, we didn't have the big PA systems that they have now. Right. Like we never mic'd amplifiers or anything. Uh, it was vocals. That's all that was in the PA. And the bass drum being the way it was, uh, with the sound going straight up, it, 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 uh, it didn't project. Right. So like unless you were playing in a really, really small club, right, it, it just wasn't cutting, you know. And we tried lying a mic on the, on the thing, but it, it it, it just didn't work, right? But uh, um, there's a lot of confusion about that kit. Everybody thinks, well, that's the kit he's got now. The drum kit thing is a, what drives me crazy, especially on Facebook, when people assume or they think that they know that that is this and this is that, and, you know, because it, that's not the way it was. That kit that we did was a, a Midnight Blue Gretsch kit, Midnight Blue Pearl Gretsch kit. And <clears throat> some of the pictures you'll see, it, they, it still has a coating on it. Right. Later, we took the coating off because Whitey wanted to have like a natural, more natural looking drum kit. So we took all the coating off, stripped it, and put it back. Um, <clears throat> but Whitey did a, Whitey's very first drum kit was actually a Rogers kit which were exactly the same sizes as the kit that he has now, but it's not the same kit. Everybody thought, that's the kit that he has now, and we took the white coating off. <laughs> well, no. He traded that Wright Rogers kit back in to Long and McQuaid's. Lou Williams was drum guy at Long and McQuaid's, and bought the Gretsch kit, which was a completely different sizes. One, the Rogers is a 24, the Gretsch was a 20. And uh, later... He kept the Gretsch kit. I don't know. I, I still, I asked Helen about that, his, his sister, a long time ago. And, and she goes, I, I don't know. She, I, I don't know what happened to the kit. Because I know he used the 20 Gretsch and the 24 Rogers together as a double bass drum kit for a while. Mm -hmm. But then I have the original snare drum. I still use that today. That's a, it's a 1963 Gretsch snare drum that thousand people have tried to buy from me not for sale <laughs> anything I got for sale not that <laughs> and uh, but um, I actually lived with Whitey for a while um, when he was on uh, Roslyn off of Young between Baby and Young and he uh, I slept on a pull-out sofa in the living room and his mother loved me and thought I was too skinny and you know between Helen and 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 Whitey's mother they basically looked at me I was a I was a Regent Park Cabbage Town kid and uh, I left home when I was 14 years old and I wasn't rich I didn't have any money and eventually Donnie 
put me on payroll with the rogues at $25 a week. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. This is as a, a roadie. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, but that's how I got, uh, Whitey, Whitey was, uh, one of those guys that, uh, uh, I'm going to tell you one more time. And if you don't get it, you're on your own, you know? Right. And he literally would stand behind me. I was playing on a pillow and a, and a book, right, in his room. And he would stand behind me with a stick in each hand. And he would go, no, <laughs> no. I had black and blue knuckles from that guy. But um, I think probably what I learned most, how I learned how to play like Whitey, not that I'm nowhere near what Whitey, what Whitey was, he was in a world all his own. He was a class of drummer that very few people are ever going to be. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but the style, when people see me play today, <clears throat> is in fact at the Whitey thing. When I came off stage, uh, I went over and of course, uh, Mike McKenna and Sean and Jay and all of it, you know, and I, two people came up to me and said, Man, it was like listening to Whitey. I said, well, I don't think so. And they said, no, you are not as good a drummer as Whitey. I said, nobody's as good a drummer as Whitey. They said, but you're, the things you play, the way you play them, your style, your groove. I can hear a lot of Whitey. And I said, well, Whitey was my teacher. You have a tendency to emulate both physical and playing and executing the way your teacher does. Right. You know, I said, so that, it, it just rubbed off on me. It, it wasn't something I consciously tried to do. It was just a natural progression, right? But, uh, yeah, it, that was, when people say things like that to me, uh, I, there's, there's musicians that I've known all my life that said, you know, there's only three guys in Toronto that ever played a real shuffle. And I said, come on. <laughs> and they said, no, not just the shuffle, the way you play the shuffle, the feel in the shuffle was Levon Helm, Whitey Glenn, and you. And I went, well, don't be putting me in the same category as Levon Helm and Whitey Glenn. <clears throat> but, but it's because of the amount of time right. I spent with Whitey. Like I say, it, 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 subconsciously, it just happened that way, you know. But that's that's how I uh, that's how I learned to play drums. So I'm talking to Blaine Pritchett. That's correct pronunciation. It is. Um, Blaine um, was suggested to me by Bernie Labarge. Great somebody player, I should talk. To. Yes, yeah. wonderful. Another wonderful person because of your interesting background. So you you, you basically start off as kind of a roadie for mm -hmm. um, for the Rogues and Mandela. Um, you've also been involved in many projects of your own, like Atlantis, your own band, which you started in 67. Mm -hmm. It's a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so tell me about when, when Donnie gave you that role to become a roadie or put you on the payroll. What, how did that happen? Well, um, there was two guys working for the band. Um, I, for some reason, the, 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 the other guy's name escapes me. I, I know his name was John, but I can never remember his last name. And Carmelo Palumbo which is on one of Donnie's records, Mello Carmelo Palumbo. That's mm -hmm. Carmelo. And uh, I was sort of uh, the lugger, right? I was, you know, back then, I mean, George Oliver helped carry equipment, okay? Um, and uh, set up, tear down, and load it in the trailer, you know. And uh, how... I got into working on Donnie's equipment was uh, Donnie had a trainer, bass master, uh, it's a YBA one, uh, the origin, original bass master amp, which Donnie used for guitar. And uh, it, uh, it stopped working. <laughs> so I went to Donnie, I said, Donnie, you know, can I, can I try to try to fix it? And hey, at this so, point, do you know anything about... No. Okay. Okay. I'm totally ignorant to, you know... But you're willing to try. I'm willing... <clears throat> and, well, Donnie's attitude was very simple. Well, kid, 
and Donnie and I were the same age, but I was the kid. And, and uh, Donnie says, well, it doesn't work now. The worst that can happen when you're finished is it still doesn't work. I mean, I, Donnie had that kind of philosophy. Right. You know? Like, hey, go ahead, try it. Well, amazingly, it took me almost an hour to get the amp apart because I didn't know what I was doing. But when I finally got the amp apart, I just started going, okay, this goes into the wall, this goes here, this goes here, right? And I was just looking for anything obvious. And lo and behold, I found it. I, you know, a wire, a cold solder joint had broken off. So we didn't have soldering irons back then, so we went and got one of these Weller guns that for, for plumbing, for plumbing, and got plumbing solder. <laughs> and I soldered the, the, the connection back on the switch, and I plugged it in. The light came on. I thought, well, there's a good sign. <laughs> Remember, I'm totally ignorant to what I'm doing. I mean, I'm, I'm playing in the dark here. Right. And uh, so I put the amp back together and plugged the cabinet in. I said, Donnie, can you try it? I, th I think it's okay now. And Donnie plugged it in and says, yeah, it's, it's perfect. What did you do? I said, trade secrets, man. I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Joking, you know. And he said, well, you know, initiative, man. He said, that's great. You know, you took enough initiative to give it a shot. Saved us from dragging it down to Long and McQuaid's or taking it out to Yorkville or whatever, you know. And I said, well, uh, when, 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 when we have some time, I'd still like to take it out to Pete and get Pete to give it a once-over, you know, just because maybe I didn't do it properly or whatever. And the Pete is Pete Trainer. Yes, Pete Trainer. yeah. Pete and Donnie were very good friends, very good friends. Uh, Pete was a class guy, crazy. He was, he was crazy, you know. Uh, Pete used to trust test amplifiers by taking he took a custom special in an 810 cabinet on the second floor of the warehouse which had a loading dock low loading dock and then a high loading dock with a with a pulley for taking cargo upstairs and he took a run at it it was on wheels he took a run at it and shot the whole thing right off out into the dock off the second floor into the parking lot below he says okay bring it back up and we'll see how how well it stood up well, a couple of the tubes were broken. The cabinet had it was, didn't quite wasn't quite symmetrical. It wasn't square anymore. But aside from that, he put tubes in it. He said, "Good, that's a good road test." He says, "I don't think anybody's going to do that to it." He says, "But we know now that it'll stand up on the road." I mean, that's I mean, who does that? <laughs> <laughs> but those are the kind of things that Pete would do. Right. You know. So you wound up. Did you work for Pete as well? Yeah. Uh, technically. Uh, I worked for Pete, not Yorkville. Okay. Okay. And Donnie asked Pete to help me with this and help me with that. And uh, Carmelo got more involved with the lighting. You know, we built a lot of the stuff that we take for granted today wasn't available back then. Right. Okay. So Pete on the side built certain things for us that were, we could use. And this would be May. PA related, amp related, both PA related and lighting related, mm -hmm. and you know, um, back then we didn't know what floor monitors were. We didn't, you know, things like that. And Pete did a lot of his PA work based on what Carmelo and myself and Donnie would tell him were the shortfalls of what we've got, what we needed. You know, Can you give me an example? Um, we were using six, eight columns, right. column uh, eight, <clears throat> eight-inch speakers, and in six of them in a, in a, in a vertical column. Right. And the problem was is that in a lot of places you couldn't get to the back of the room because they didn't throw to the back of the room. And that's when Pete designed the YSC five which was a, a, a very elaborate cabinet with a 12-inch speaker in it. But it was still just a 12-inch speaker. There was no high frequency or anything. And the ones that we had, uh, the production models were had JBL K... No, K, D120s. JBL D120 12s. But the ones that we had had very, very expensive 12s in them 
called Vitavox from England. And they had <clears throat> a little more of the mid and highs that JBL didn't have. And uh, Pete, uh, we were testing ground for them. And they worked so well that Yorkville actually put them into production. What kind of places were you playing at this point? Like what? At this stage of the game, we were at like the, the Broom and Stone and the Gogin and uh, some smaller clubs, some smaller blues clubs. Right. But um, uh, this getting old is terrible. <laughs> I, I know the uh, feeling. Uh, Crane Plaza, you know, that, that sort of. How many seaters? Like, would it be like 200 people? Uh, 200 to 500. Okay. You know. Um, and what year would this be? 64, 65, 66. Okay. Somewhere in around there. The Mandela, which was formed after the Rogues, uh, when Raphael Markowitz, Randy Martin, became the manager. The band became uh, much more big time. Randy Martin ran CHCH TV in Hamilton, mm -hmm. and he was very skilled at lighting and, and production, and uh, he, he was a very smart man, very, very clever man. And uh, we were the first band to have lighting systems, like a full lighting system, and uh, we were the first bands to use a strobe a strobe light. Right. Um, the only time we stopped using the strobe was during the Vietnam War when <laughs> the, the bulbs for the strobe light were used on the Skokorsky helicopters in Vietnam. So the supply, all the supply of the strobe bulbs were going to the States for the <laughs> helicopters, for the Skokorsky helicopters for Vietnam. So being in part of the band, and I don't know how much say you had in things or I presume you were involved and knew what was going on on the goings on of the band? Uh, to a point. Okay. Yeah, but at that point, point... Donnie was always very cautious about um, things that um, he didn't want to become public knowledge, uh, whether it was things um, that Markowitz, ideas that Markowitz had and stuff like that. You know, Markowitz is one of those guys, hey, until we actually go out on stage with this and da-da-da, let's keep it under our hats. Right, right. Okay? Uh, it, it was very competitive business. But yeah. at that point, like being part of the band, do you, did you know what the vision of the band was? What what they had, the goals, what they were hoping to do? Well, to be quite honest with you, no. Okay. I really don't. I, all I know is that they were driven, very driven. It, they, they were a band that rehearsed whenever they possibly could. Um, every member of that band really, really worked at their craft. Donnie was one of those guys that he, he said, look, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. You know, and uh, the guys in the band had such great respect for Donnie and his ability that they listened to him. And some of the guys uh, became much better musicians, especially towards the Mandela, in, in, during the Mandela. That's when they really excelled as, as musicians. Um, where I, the only thing that I was privy to on a constant basis was um, equipment, um, Using the equipment, making sure that uh, that uh, you know. I mean, I did a lot of the sound right. at that time. Carmelo did lighting. Those are things that I had to know about. But as as far as the uh, the internal workings and the business and the localities of this and that, you know, um, I wasn't privy to any of that. Okay, and that. At this point, are you playing your drums at this point? I was playing drums, but not not with them. Right. But, uh, yeah, at that stage of the game, I had uh, I had uh, gotten to the point where I could I could play a little bit, and I was playing in a little church band, you know, um, but not to the point where I was ready to... Start your band. Go out and, you know, 
and do this. The whole time I had Atlantis, there were many times, right up until the Guess Who, where um, if the band was out on, if the Guess Who was out on tour, which we were a lot, that band worked a lot, um, I had other guys playing drums in Atlantis. Okay. Right? Um, so you were, your priority was being... My Dom priority was Dominic Troiano. And being his guitar tech. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, how well do you play the guitar? How long did Donnie no, play? No, no. How long do you play? Uh, I don't play guitar. So you don't have to know anything about the guitar no, to be his which, tech. Which, which is, and and I mean, I learned what I had to learn about guitars, um, to make Donnie's function properly. Okay. Uh, like as far as a play, well, I learned Donnie taught me a couple of like, right. you know, Lenny Bro type chords, <laughs> right? And it was funny because I played, I could play couple of riffs on the bass but that was it I could play a thing from Chicago and you know and a couple of these really heavy Lenny Bro chords and Donnie said no no here here you know, and I practice and you know and it was funny because during sound checks and like when we're on tour I'd go out on stage and I'd check Wallace's bass and you know make sure that we had a drum roadie at that time with the guess who uh, Roy Love uh, who was Gary Peterson was very particular about how his kit was, and he did nothing but look after, right? But I looked after uh, the bass and the guitar and helped Jumbo with the uh, pickups for the, for the grand piano. But while I was out there, right, I would, the guys from Shoko were miking, miking everything, right? And, Can I get a little bit of the guitar, you know? And I'd play these, <laughs> these, these Lenny Bro chords. <laughs> and the sound guy go, holy... Where, where did you learn? <laughs> what a great, you know. And I went, ah, play something else. No, 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 no. I got, I'm busy. I got, I went always, I couldn't play anything. I just knew the one chord. <laughs> and uh, same thing with the bass. The thing from Chicago. And, but I could play that. But that was it. <laughs> then I'd stop. So this relationship that you established in the mid-60s with Donnie lasted a long time. Like you became, just because he fixed his amp once, that became this ongoing relationship. Well, even if I hadn't fixed the amp, I would have stayed there. <laughs> he just yeah. wouldn't have paid you. Well, uh, I made... I still debate whether this was a good choice or not a good choice. At one point, I got offered a job at Yorkville Sound. Right. Okay. And they were going to send me to Radio College of Canada. And uh, this was all through Pete. Pete was going to put this whole thing together. He said, "Man, you really need to know more electronics. You need to know. You need to know more." Right. It says, uh, Did you feel that? Did you understand where he was coming from? I beg your pardon? Did you understand where he was coming from when he said that? Oh, yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, I was a seek and find and hope mm -hmm. kind of guy with electronic. And, uh, but the, anyway, they were going to send me to radio college and uh, pay for the whole thing, right? The, the deal was is that when I finished Radio College of Canada, I had to give Yorkville two years... Right, of your time. Uh, of employment, right. you know, I mean, at, at a salary, of course, but yeah. like, you know, uh, because the, at the time they were, they were going through repairmen and, you know, and they were, they, they wanted somebody that, that was uh, really good with the trainer amps, knew the trainer amps, knew the, you know, the Yorkville products. And uh, at that time, the Mandela was getting ready to do a Canadian tour <laughs> from Toronto to Vancouver. I mean, I'd never been outside Ontario at this point, right? And at a salary, you know, my salary was $25 a week, right? Right. And uh, I said, Pete, maybe we'll talk when I come back. He says, no, no, it, it's now or never. And I said, no, the band's going on a Canadian tour. I'm going. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> at that time, we had a road manager, Roland Paquin, and... Uh, uh, Carmelo had, uh, yeah, Carmelo was still with us. It was Roland, Carmelo, and myself. And uh, 
I, I often wonder whether I've made a mistake in not going to Radio College of Canada and, and getting an electronics degree, and you know. But I'm not sorry. At what points did you wonder about that? At what point did I wonder about that? Uh, like, when would you have questioned whether that was a good move or not? Certainly uh, not when you're out there on the road. No, no, it never happened when I was out there on the road. Yeah. Uh, I, I was uh, I was 100% concentrating on what I was doing and and enjoying my life on the road. And uh, not, tell, that, tell not, not that it was all good. No, I'm there sure. Was, there were some very, very bad times, uh, you know, uh, traveling through the Rocky Mountains and Rogers Pass in the middle of winter with Roland driving the van. Believe me, that's not fun. <laughs> he was crazy. I mean, it was, I looked out the window a couple of times and said, we're going to die. <laughs> the van was so heavy that we actually had to have special rims made to carry the weight no. because the regular rims on the on the the Chevy van that we bought would crack. I mean, we had to have super big tires and, and rims just to carry the weight. We carried everything the Mandela had on stage in a van. And uh, at that point, the B3 had already been chopped because the B3 got smashed. That's another story. <laughs> Getting loaded on an airplane, it fell off a conveyor belt and landed on the tarmac. So it didn't pass the trainer test. No, it didn't pass the trainer test. <laughs> it didn't pass the Air Canada test either. <laughs> so what was it like to go on the road for the first time? I As was a kid. I was I was a young kid and it, that it, like I said, that had never been out of Ontario. You know, I grew up here. Um well, I shouldn't say I'd never been out of Ontario. I'd been to England and and uh, you know, the East Coast and whatnot, but um very young. Um it was exciting. Mm -hmm. It was it was it was exciting. Uh, I've told this to. I mean, I was a Cabbage Town kid. I grew up in Regent Park, mm -hmm. along with Sonny Milne and a lot of other guys that a lot of you know that that were Regent Park guys. You know, Gordy McBain, drummer from from Bobby Chris and the Imperials, and uh, uh, there was a lot of us that were. Parliament and Carlton, uh, Jarvis and Carlton, Regent Park area. It was kind of a melting pot at that point there. And one of the things that I have, I have told this to many people over the years, but it's the God's honest truth. If it hadn't been for the rogues, especially Dominic Troiano, I would have either ended up dead or in prison because I was headed down that path. I was, I was, I was, I was a, 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 a tough Regent Park kid that was constantly getting in trouble and fighting. And, you know, uh, I can remember I had, uh, I was 14 when I left home, but I got my first car when I was 15. And I paid $15 for it and sold it for 35 <laughs> It started me on the, hey, this is, this, this, this can work. <laughs> and I can remember going down Parliament Street in my car and two so plane, you, two Could plane, you legally drive at 15? No, no, oh, okay. no, no. Of course have, not. I didn't have a license. And there was these two policemen from Regent Street Station. And their names were Nicolucci and Barbetta. Later became very famous detectives in Toronto. And they knew me, I, I, you know, they, they, those guys knew all the kids, they knew, you know, they knew what was going on in their, in their precinct. And the car stops, Nicolucci rolls down the window and says, Pritchett, take it home and park it, because if I see you in it again, <laughs> we're going to take the car from you. Okay. And they knew I was 15. They knew I didn't have a license. But that's the way it was back then. Right. right? So I would continue on down Parliament Street to commissioner and drive around. Where, where. What, what made you so angry? I beg your pardon? What made you so angry? So you said you were getting into trouble all the time and you were angry. Um, 
frustration more than anything. Um, being on the street when you're 14 years old with no money and no place to live and no prospects, <laughs> I guess for the most part, I was feeling sorry for myself, which I didn't realize at the time. Mm -hmm. But as I got older, I realized that, you know, hey, there were other people in worse positions than I was. But um, I think uh, uh, some of the people I was hanging around with, some of my friends and stuff like that, they were pretty tough guys. And uh, they got into a lot of trouble. And uh, I think... If I hadn't started going to the Blue Note, if I hadn't met Whitey, I hadn't met Donnie, and you know, uh, because Donnie really changed my life. Did he actually ever sit down and talk to you? Yeah, about, yeah? On, on many occasions. Right up until, even while we were with the Guess Who. You know, um, we would spend time in his room or my room just talking about things that are happening on the road and this and that. I used to have a lot of trouble justifying the amount of money I was making. Hmm. So you would spend it? You would spend it? No, 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 no. Uh, I had never seen that much money, never mind make that much money. Mm -hmm. uh, when Donnie went with the Guess Who, uh, I was part of the package for him. Yeah, but I want Blaine because Blaine built my equipment, maintains my equipment, he knows my equipment, right? So when Donnie went with the Guess Who, I was part of the package with him. Because they didn't want me. They said, you know, we've got guys, you know. And Donnie's argument was, yeah, but these guys don't know my equipment like Blaine knows my equipment because Blaine built that and he built that and he, you know. And uh, I'd feel a lot more comfortable if he was, you know. And that's how I got to go with Donnie with the guess who. It was, uh, Donnie felt that it was a need for me to be there. Which was great because... I would sit in his room at night and say, Donnie, I can't justify my salary. And he says, well, you think I can? <laughs> he says, what are, you, what are you, crazy? I said, well, Donnie, I'm not, I'm not worth this kind of money. I mean, I was getting like $200 a day per diem plus my salary. I'm going, like, well, this is crazy. You know, like, I'm not worth this kind of money. You could get, there's a thousand guys out there you could get for a lot less money. And, and Donnie says, don't worry about it. And on, on, at a later date on a conversation, it was told to me, they said, you know, by management, and uh, they said, Blaine, it's very simple. We give it to you or we give it to the government. You're a tax write-off. Right. You're an expense. Like the three limousines 24 hours a day in half of these cities. Some of them times they never got used. But there was three limousines in Chicago, in New York, and in all the major cities, whether they were used or not. And it was a tax write-off. It was as simple as that. You know, I, mean, I, I, don't, I didn't understand that stuff. I, way beyond my knowledge of, of how things work. But Donnie showed me uh, the benefits of being a good person. He says, you know, uh, people will respect you if you're a good person. And by being a good person, you know, you don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't steal, you don't, you know, and you treat other human beings the way you want to be treated, right? He says, people will like you, you know, and basically... I thought the world owed me a living. You know, I mean, I was a pretty stupid kid. And Donnie taught me that the world owes you nothing. You want something in this world, you work for it, and if, uh, if uh, the stars are all aligned, it'll all come about, you know. Uh, but he must have seen something in you. Donnie's seen something in everybody. It wasn't me. Donnie was one of those people... Like I said, you, won't, you will be very, very hard-pressed to find anybody that ever spent more than five minutes with Dominic Troiano that could find anything bad to say about him. Mm -hmm. Donnie was one of those guys. Donnie's one of those, Donnie taught me a lot of things about music. 
and he taught me taught me a lot about life. But one of the things that Donnie taught me was, you know, you'd hear people, you know, they'd go to a club and they'd see a band, and you hear other musicians going, "Man, that drummer sucks. That guy, he he is just terrible, right?" And guys like Whitey and Donnie would say, "Whitey, you go, okay, so yeah, he's not Buddy Rich, okay, but you know what?" Sometimes if you listen, you might hear something that he's doing that you can't do, right? Or you can learn from anybody. Donnie and Whitey's philosophy was you can learn from anybody. It doesn't have to be a big star that you learn something from. You know, um, I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by, like when we were on tour, I mean, I sat in the dressing room with Donnie and John McLaughlin right, and watch those guys swap licks and, you know, and, you know, Clapton and, and, and you know, like I, 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 I got to spend time around some of the most famous players on the planet and how they reacted with Donnie and how Donnie reacted with them. It was a mutual admiration society, mm-hmm. right? It was a lot like Oscar Peterson and Doug Riley. If you ask Doug Riley who his favorite piano player was, Doug Riley would say, well, Oscar Peterson. And if you ask Oscar Peterson who his favorite piano or organ player was, oh, Doug Riley. You know, it was a mutual admiration society. Well, with Donnie, whether it was uh, uh, Tal Farlow or Mel Bay, or it didn't matter who you were. Um, Donnie, without saying anything, he did his talking with his guitar without saying anything. Donnie demanded the respect of these people. Ricky Derringer, all of them. If mm-hmm. you ask any one of them, they will all tell you. Don McTriano was a phenomenal musician. And the only guitar player on this planet that ever scared Donnie was Lenny Bro. Hmm. And you know Lenny Bro chords. Well, I know I, I know one, and I'm sure I'm not playing it right. <laughs> so, after you fixed his amp and he hired you, gave you salary, were you with him throughout that whole time? Oh yeah. Okay. So, when did the when did the James Gang thing happen? Well, I didn't actually. I I worked for Donnie here. Okay. While he was with the James Gang, but when he left the James Gang, who were based out of Cleveland, um. I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure you're out of Cleveland. I know because I sent stuff back and forth. So. <laughs> um, um, Donnie had a house in L.A., and I went to live with Donnie in L.A. And uh, that time period, we played basketball in the, in the yard and uh, went to see all kinds of people. And, da, da, da. and during that time, after the James game, Donnie played very little guitar. Very, very little. He'd pick up his acoustic once in a while and do something, but he just had no interest in playing at all. Because? I think the James Gang put him in a state of depression. Oh. Uh, so this was after the Guess Who? No, this is before the Guess Who. Oh, okay. Before the Guess Who. And we had a mutual friend, one of the great organ player, William Smith, Smitty probably know him from Motherlode, but he was also the keyboard player in the Silhouettes and, you know, very good friend of Donnie's. And Donnie learned a lot from Smitty. Smitty was a gospel blues guy. But uh, uh, him and a drummer, uh, Eric Johnson, was called Mouse, they used to play at a club in L.A. uh, called the Midnight Special. Not the TV, the club was called the Midnight Special. And Donnie go there, you know, and they all, everybody tried to get Donnie up to play. Donnie didn't want to play. No, 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 no. I don't have my guitar with me. I don't have my amp with me. I don't, no, I'm not, you know, I don't feel like playing, you know. And this went on. And uh, Smitty says to me, he says, next time you come down, okay, make sure you shove his guitar in the trunk of the guitar, uh, car, so he doesn't have an excuse. I don't have my guitar with me, you know. Mm-hmm. So sure enough, at that time, Donnie had a 
Mustang Mach 1, and I had a 58 Corvette Mint showroom. In fact, I ended up selling it to Frank, his brother. <laughs> uh, uh, Kenner had a 56 or 57 T-Bird. We were living the life in L.A. <laughs> and uh, so I said, I'm going to take my car, right? So because I somehow couldn't figure out how I was going to get his guitar in the trunk of his car without him. Without him. Wait, and, and are you concerned that he's not playing? Uh, I didn't know what... what I, I, I wasn't smart enough to figure it out. I really wasn't. I, but he I, wouldn't say anything about no, it? No, no, Donnie. He never complained about anything. But you're his guitar tech, and he's not playing his guitar. Well, but he's not playing in a band either. Right. You know, he's not playing in a band. He he just left the James Gang, and he he just wasn't interested in playing in a band or doing anything. Um, anyway, I I got the guitar there, and I threw one of his little old Fender amps in the front seat of the car, and I get down and I got there before he did, and of course I put the amp on stage, and uh, Smitty and Mouse are like, "Come on, Donnie, you got to get up, and you know we really want to play with you." And da 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 da. Donnie, no 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 no, I don't have my guitar. I said, I just happened to remember I had to do some work on your guitar. It's still in my car. Let me grab it. <laughs> and after that night, he started playing more. He just needed that over the hump. Right. You know, I'm sh- I, I, I don't know what was going on in Donnie's mind. I, I don't think anybody ever did. But uh, I know now that I'm a little older and, and I look back on it, uh, I I think Donnie was going through a state of depression. Mm-hmm. You know, he there was things in his life that just weren't right for him, and I'm sure he uh, he was going through a, a little bit of depression. You know, shortly after that, um, Don Hunter and uh, Burton Cummings and Gary Peterson showed up and talked to him about joining the guests. Who Donnie wasn't interested, not interested. I think it was. They came two, maybe three times to L.A. to talk to Donnie. I think Burton was uh, doing some stuff at RCA or something. And Anyway, they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> Being Italian, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Donnie decided that, that that was probably, you know, he liked Burton. And... Uh, Burton was one of those guys that wrote great lyrics, but needed, in the past, it was always Randy Bachman and Burton Cummings. You know, all their hits were written by those guys. And Burton needed somebody that could could write, you know. And uh, they did uh, three albums. And um, probably the downfall of the guess who. Because? You know, I may be speaking way out of turn here, you know, this is not for me to to right. second guess or right. But Jack Richardson once told me the only fault he could ever find in Dominic Troiano was that he hasn't got a commercial bone in his body. Hmm. With everything with Donnie, it has to be musical. Right. It has to be. But sorry, didn't sorry. Donnie do Dancing Fool? Isn't that? Oh yeah, the, yeah, that's on that's on that's on one of the Guess Who albums. Yeah. That's a pretty commercial song. Yeah. Um, he tried. <laughs> if you listen to the last album, uh, Donnie was rapidly turning a three-chord, 12-part rock and roll band into the Mission Orchestra. <laughs> no, I mean, if you listen to tunes like Long Gone and tunes like that, they're, they're not top 40 tunes. Right, those, right. Are, those are... Yeah. Uh, their album cuts on... Mile vision is albums, you know. But uh, uh, Donnie was always forward, forward, forward. Get better, get better, get right. better, you know. And Donnie's, uh, Donnie didn't limit himself to listening to just R&B or just blues or just jazz or, you know. I remember this one time, uh, Donnie's house on Salmon Avenue uh, up the stairs and at the back of the house there was a washroom right next to the washroom was his little music room where he had his turntable and all his albums and everything right so I'm walking up the stairs and Donnie <laughs> Donnie's got a toothbrush in his mouth 
and his guitar <laughs> and he's brushing his teeth and still playing the fingering stuff on the neck of his guitar and he says oh man he says i got this out you got to hear this guy right and i'm going yeah okay you know and uh he puts puts he had already had the album on the turn to me he put the thing on right and all i could hear was this blur of notes and you know you know and i went uh does that mean anything? I mean, like, Donnie says, no, he says, he's not just grabbing handfuls of strings. He's actually playing the, the notes. I mean, these are all in. And I said, well, who? He says, this guy's a country player. And uh, uh, he, I picked up the album. The album was called Fire on the Strings. And the guy's name was Joe Mathis. I never heard of him before and right. still don't really know who he was. But the, my point is, is that Donnie didn't just listen to his peers and, 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 you know, I mean, he was a really big blues guy. So he listened to a lot of B.B. King and Albert King and Freddie King and, you know, uh, John Mayall and all those guys. You know, he, he he was always interested in what they were doing and everything, right? But he didn't narrow his... His his uh, his uh, listening to just one genre or right. just one guy, you know, he, he, if it was a guitar player, he listened to him. Whether it was live or whether it was an album or whatever, I was going to say CD, but they didn't have them then. So, so let me ask you this: when when you started your band, Atlantis, in '67, mm-hmm. band was actually before '67. The band was called Phil Eskins and the Expression Review. And when the band broke up, uh, I waited a little while, and then I picked a lot of the guys that I wanted to keep playing with and reformed the band as Atlantis. What was the goal at that point? Like, did you want to be like Dominic Triano? I just wanted to play. But, you see, one of the problems I had with having a band back, especially back then, was everybody that played with me was well aware that if Donnie needed me or if Donnie was going to, that they had to find another drummer because right. I was, that's where I was going, right? Um, I lost contact with Whitey for quite a while because Whitey was in the States and he was playing with Alice Cooper, he was playing with Lou Reed and he was playing with Steppenwolf and he was playing, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we lost contact for a while. But uh, when he came back and, you know, like I said, I, I actually lived with him with his mom and dad and his sister for a while. But uh, um, uh, Whitey wasn't the same. He, he, he um, like, I mean, if you listen to him play, like in The Rose with Bette Midler, mm-hmm. and if you listen to him, some of the stuff that he played with Alice Cooper, man, the guy was a monster. And he was just the reason why Bette Midler, who <laughs> she had enough money and she had enough power, she could have got anybody, right? But being a musician herself, right? When you listen to Whitey play, or you listen to Donnie play, or even Prakash, mm-hmm. when you listen to him play, especially those guys together, Danny Weiss another guitar player that was phenomenal. I mean, Rhinoceros, when they did Apricot Brandy, I think Danny was like 17 or 18 years old. I mean, he, he was a phenom. He was just a phenomenal, you know. When you listen to those guys play, it's not, you're not going, oh yeah, he's a good guitar player. There's a magic to their playing. Mm-hmm. And when people like Bette Midler hear a guy like Whitey, especially if he's playing with Prakash, because they, they, they had a, such a great groove and a great tie in together they they knew what the other guy was going to do before they did it you know um it's a special thing it's a really really special thing and not everybody has that and the guys that that uh from the rogues you know mandela uh they had a magic and probably if they had been different guys and you know the magic of Donnie would always be there. I mean, I know keyboard players that have literally told me 
that they learn more listening to Dominic Troiano than they ever learned from a piano player. I mean, keep, like, Gabor Sapisi was a really great organ player and keyboard player here in, in Toronto. Um, he said to me, he says, he remembers when he was in high school standing in front of the stage looking up at Dominic Troiano and Donnie played a chord. And I mean, he was a classically trained, really mm. good piano player. And he looked up and he, hear, he heard this chord and went, what the hell was that? <laughs> and that became the big joke about, oh, Donnie, oh, yeah, you know, the G augmented ninth chord. <laughs> like, who plays a G augmented ninth chord? Donnie does, you know. <laughs> and, and, and Gabor says, he, he could play piano chords. I'm sure that was the Lenny Bro influence. Lenny Bro could finger with nine fingers and strum with his thumb and play, <laughs> play jazz piano chords, you know. Um, they were special. They were really, really special. And, and, and um, Whitey was special. Donnie was special. Prakash. Those guys, Joey Horowski, who was, you know, one of the funniest, nicest people you ever want to meet, you know. These people were, they had a bond. Mm-hmm. They had a bond, and that bond came out in their music. I mean, like you know, they could they could have an argument with each other and want to kill each other, but the minute they stepped on stage, the magic was still there. Like nothing changed it, nothing. It was uh, uh, didn't matter whether Whitey was playing in a little bar in, in the beaches in Toronto or he was playing with Bette Midler, he played with the same magic always with the same magic. Uh, I, uh, every time I see Whitey play, I learn something. You know, after all those years, right. he, had some, he, he always had some new little thing that I'd quite never noticed before. A couple of things that are really funny. Two things. One time, Whitey came to see us play because he used to sit in with my band. He came to see us play and we were playing um, in a club in the beaches. And... Uh, I came off stage, and uh, I says, uh, I, I says, you know, how's, how's it sounding, you know? Whitey says, man, that, what, that, that feel thing that you did in Stormy Money, he says, that, that, that six, eight feel that you, you, you know, he says, man, that was so cool, you know? And I went, Whitey, I learned that from you. You, <laughs> you do that all the time. No, no, no. I says, no, no. He says, that was you. That was one thing that used to make me laugh when he would do things like that. And he has told people on a couple of occasions that when I come to see him play, he gets nervous. Wow. And I thought, what? That's insane. And somebody very close to Whitey said to me, he says, well, it's not that he gets nervous about your playing. He's nervous because he knows you're the only person in this room that will know if he screws up. Because he, 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 he knows that you know how it's, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's like, if he makes a mistake, he knows I'm going to catch it. <laughs> right? He says, nice to make him. It was, it was obviously a joke. But the fact of the matter was, is that Whitey told me, he says, I can make a hundred mistakes a night and nobody would know. He says, but you'd know. I said, well... I kind of sort of go go along with the bouncing ball here. <laughs> it's amazing that that young kid from Regent Park who was quite lost got a chance to meet two phenomenal people and changed your life. I, uh, I, I can't, uh, I don't know why. I think it was because I went to a place where club called the Blue Note. This is the original Blue Note on mm-hmm. Young and Jerk. And I went to a place that when the minute you stepped inside and the band was playing, it just grabbed you by the throat. The, the hair, you know how the people say, oh, I guess I, the hair was constantly up on my arms. Right. The magic of the music coming out of that room 
and not just from the players, some of the singers. Sean, the, the Sean music- Jackson, who was just a young, very young girl at the time. And, right. and uh, some of the biggest stars in the world came into that club to see that band. You know, a couple of guys from the Rolling Stones came in one night. You know, uh, uh, one of the guys that was on the floor show uh, was uh, the guy that did 25 miles from there to... Uh, Anyway, it's that age thing, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. I I can see him standing in front of me, and I know exactly who you are, and I, you know. But do you think I can remember your name? <laughs> but what? Okay, so what? As as a young fourteen year old, what made you go to that club? And and how much did music mean to you outside well, of that club? Well, actually, it was a friend of mine, Phil Johnson, who um, uh, he was taking drum lessons at the time, and uh, he told me about. Uh, uh, this drummer that he goes to see, this whitey gland. And he says, you know, you should come down. And I said, ah, I don't know, you know, don't have enough money to get in. And he says, well, you know, I'll spring, you know, I'll, I'll pay your way in and get you a membership. You had to be a member to get into the Blue Note. Yeah. So that was the first time. And uh, I don't think I missed a weekend after that. Uh it just, uh, it was just something that, it just happened. It just, it was like, it was like, this is where I want to be. This is. Did you find a purpose? Whitey. Yeah. That's what I want to do. This, the thing that he's doing there, beating on those, that's what I want to do, right? And I think the reason why Whitey spent so much time with me and Whitey helped me so much and taught me a lot of the tricks was that he knew my passion. He understood my passion to play, you know, and not just, you know, why do you used to get upset with me? Because uh, I lived on Mutual Street, just north of the CBC for a while. And I had this beat up old drum kit and I couldn't play it in the house. So I used to go out in the backyard and play the drums, right? Everybody was at work. Nobody was home, so it didn't really matter. And one day, uh, I turned around, and there was a guy standing behind me. And he goes, hi, how are you? I went, "Uh, fine, you know. And he says, listen, can I show you something? And I said, yeah, okay. (laughs) And he took my hand, he turned my hand over. And I was trying to play... Just eights and quarters, right? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do it. He says, play your cymbal again, right? And I went, and I started playing a swing feel on my right cymbal. He says, oh, you can do that, but you can't play eights? And I went, yeah, uh, this seems very natural to me. <laughs> it turns out the, the drummer was Russ Barron, who was the, at the time the studio drummer for the CBC. Wow. And he was just on his way to work. And Whitey used, he, he, he says, you know, he says, you, you, you pissed me off. <laughs> he says, you know, he says, you got it all backwards. He says, the things you're not supposed to be able to do for a long time, you've got down pat. Now, you can't play a simple rock and roll ace and quarters. What is wrong with you? <laughs> and it was funny. I, I just heard things that I could play. And there were other things that I went, I don't hear this. I, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, the old, I didn't feel it, man. Well, yeah, I, I could feel the swing. I could, that was so natural to me, whereas the, the rock and roll, I, I, I just couldn't, you know. In order to play what Whitey can play, you have to start from the very, very basics. I mean, it's like, one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And for a long... I mean, Whitey, Whitey was a musician before he was a drummer. He was actually an accordion player. Whitey learned to play, read music and everything because he right. played accordion. So he had a concept and an understanding of how music structured and everything, right? And I always wanted to play the fat back, left-hand kick drum funk stuff that he, you know, he says... He says, man, you're not ready. You're not ready, right? And he was right. 
because I, this is funny, and I have friends that, that actually have seen me do this. I would leave the Blue Note. And at the time, the Blue Note was at Young and Girard, and I lived on Mutual Street, which was just a block over, right. two blocks over. And uh, I would be walking along Girard Street, going boom, 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 I'm emulating in my head what I heard a riff that Whitey played. And then I would go home and get my telephone book out and, 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 and I would try and... But I, 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 in order to remember what he was doing, I would make the sound of the kick and the snare and the hat, you know, and, and, and keep the groove going over and over in my head. But when I actually sat down to try and play it, ah, <laughs> I can make those sounds, but I can't do it with the sticks in my hand. And that's when I realized, yeah, it's a long, it's an uphill. Mm -hmm. It's not something you're going to pick up in 10 minutes. It's, you know. And Whitey was right, you know, do your homework. Do your homework, you know. Whitey used to squeeze rubber balls and stuff like that to keep his fingers strong. He, he worked at his craft a lot of people think that Whitey was just a natural. Right. No, Whitey worked at his craft. He really did. Um, we have to wrap this up, but I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts on both Whitey and Dominic Toronto, who both people who I think are amazing musicians. And obviously, not only that, but just amazing people who actually changed your life. Oh, not just mine. Many people's lives. Many, many people's lives. Both of them. Yeah. Especially Dominic. Because Dominic had a, he had a way of talking to you that made you calm. If you got excited, he could calm you down. If, and he was, he was the voice of reason. When you couldn't figure out what all the problems, you know, he was the voice of reason. He would sit down and talk to you, and you would actually, when you finished talking to Dominic, you understood what the problem was and you understood how to go about trying to fix it. He did it for me thousands of times. Believe me, uh, the voice of reason, I miss him every day. Every day I miss him. Thank you so much for doing this.